Yeev agus Fáilte Gudián Clár. Hello and welcome to Heart to Heart, a podcast where we chat about Irish vernacular buildings, past, present and future, with the people who love them and look after them. I'm Lydia. And I'm Roisin. And we are committee members of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in Ireland, or SBAB, as it's also known. This is episode two of a 10-part series where we talk to different people working in the area of vernacular buildings in Ireland, as well as those who are passionate about conserving them. This is our third season running the podcast. And in this episode, we talk to Marianne Sir to get some advice from the Old House Eco Handbook about sensitive interventions that can make traditional buildings more suitable for contemporary living while still retaining the character of your old building. We get into dew points, insulating plasters, underfloor heating, secondary glazing, appropriate insulation, and some of the quick wins that can be carried out on traditional buildings. We hope you enjoy. So welcome to the podcast, Marianne. It's great to be talking to you today. Uh, you are a chartered building surveyor, specifically specializing in the repair of older buildings. Um, you're a past fab scholar and co-author of the Old House Handbook and the Old House Eco Handbook. So I was wondering if you could tell us in a nutshell a bit about your background and what led you to where you are today. Well, hi, uh, it's great to be with you. Um, so how did I start in all of this? Well, I think I wanted to be an architect uh, at school but didn't quite get the grades. And so I ended up being a building surveyor. And surprisingly, that led me to conservation. And uh, I, I think I just met somebody one day working on a scaffold and started chatting. And they told me about the SPAB. And so before I'd even graduated in my building surveying degree, I knew that I wanted to apply for this BAB scholarship, uh, the most incredible opportunity. Um, where every year they take three or four architects, building surveyors and engineers and send them on a magical mystery tour around the UK. Sometimes they get over to Ireland and further afield, uh, but it's the most extraordinary experience and something that really set me off in my whole career. So, um, yeah, that's how I got here. I specialised really fast-tracked through the SPAB scholarship and came out the other end, initially working for an architect specialising in conservation, but then getting a few lucky breaks along the way and uh, setting up on my own. On your website, I saw that you did work on, you bought your own house, I think it was in 1995, and since have done up a few of your own houses, and you sort of have done a lot of the hands-on work yourself. Could you tell us a bit about those, or which, which would be your favourite of those projects and which was most interesting for you? Well, they've all been fantastic um, and I've done a, done a few houses now and they've all been very, very different. So each one has given me different experiences and different levels of knowledge. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I bought my first house in 1997 when it was still affordable for people on a fairly low salary with not a huge amount of savings to get on the property ladder. Um, I came across a wonderful, tiny little one-bedroom cottage in Bristol where I was living at the time. It was coated in plastic paint over rubble stone. And uh, I took it upon myself to tip off the plastic paint and repoint it all with lime mortar and lime wash it, all things that I'd learned about on the scholarship. So I felt really pretty confident in, uh, in getting stuck in and doing it myself. The only complication was uh, at the beginning of the project, I broke my foot and I had to complete the whole project <laughs> with my foot in a car um, and, um <laughs> my neighbor very kindly sending up buckets of fresh lime mortar on a pulley so I didn't have to climb down the ladder every time um but yeah that was quite a challenge um but set me up for all the all the challenges yet to come yeah uh, my next lucky break really lucky break was um meeting a builder called Anthony Goode in Leicestershire uh who was very keen on building with earth and repairing earth buildings. And again, I've had a little bit of experience working with earth, but um, teaming up with this builder who became a great friend of mine, um, we did some great projects. And he one day stumbled across a little house that had been empty for 50 years. 
and uh, in Leicestershire, and he rang me up in a, a state of great excitement. And he said, Marianne, I think we should buy this house. We should buy it. We could repair it and experiment with it, use all the fab techniques, and then at the end, we can just sell it and try not to make a loss on it, was the, was the business model, and uh, which sounded great, but at the time, I was working for an architect. But in that very same week, I was offered a television job uh, presenting yeah. the restoration program um, uh, uh, in the UK. And uh, this was back in 2002. And um, suddenly, all sorts of new possibilities opened up. And I rang my friend Angie back and said, yes, I can do it. Um, because the TV work lasted about one week a month. And I could spend yeah. the other three up the scaffold, working with him and buying this old house. So that's what we did. We bought the house. Um, it was in, an incredible opportunity. It ha it's one of those very rare things. Um, you don't very often find them now, but it hadn't been touched. It really hadn't been touched since the 1950s. And it was boarded up. It was in such a derelict state that it was, you weren't actually allowed to go in it. So we had to buy it. We put in a tender for it. Um, without ha ever having seen the inside, which is a very wow. scary thing to do when you're handing over quite large sums of money. Um, but uh, the, the day came when we took possession of it. We took the boards off the windows and we looked at, we sort of rubbed the, the dirt off the panes, the remaining panes in the windows and looked inside and we could see that it was all there. You know, it was just this, it was, it was a bit like, um, discovering Tutankhamun's tomb, I suppose. And uh, we looked yeah. inside and we could see it had wonderful, wonderful things. And that was just a whole new adventure. Yeah, I bet. Can you tell us a bit about the house? Like, how old was it? And what was it like on the inside? And, and what sort of problems did you face with it? Well, it was a brick building. And I think um, the early part of it dated back to the um, uh, early early 18th century, possibly even a little bit earlier than that, um, because we found some very old glass, which obviously related to a, a, an earlier part of the building. Um, but uh, it was uh, thatch windows, it was a thatch roof, the remains of a thatch roof under corrugated iron. Mm -hmm. So, um, And all the plaster was still on the walls, the original line plaster, the original colour schemes, uh, everything was there. Um, lime ash floors, all sorts of treasures. And uh, we really went to town just trying to save every little inch of that building and go yeah. to great lengths to just to just really preserve it. But make it viable. I mean, this was the challenge. Yeah. We had to, we had a very limited budget and we had to, at the end of the day, sell it to somebody. Um, so yeah. it had to be a viable building that someone would want to live in. And of course, the greatest challenge was not making a loss, um, which we sort of, we sort of reached. Um, <laughs> that, that was tricky. Yeah. Um, when you were doing this, how long did it take? And um, how did you, like, how did you make the building suitable for modern day living? Um, did, I'm guessing, was it connected to electricity and water and have services and things like that? Did these have to be introduced? No, it, did, it didn't have any services, so mm. we had to connect all of those things, but it was in a little village, so okay. it was uh, easy to do. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, we we put a, a very small extension on the back, and we rejigged it slightly. Um, one of the tricks I regularly use with buildings like this is putting in a second staircase, because so many cottages that are only one and a half stories high, the sloping ceilings on the first floor, they weren't designed to have corridors. And there's often one staircase leading to multiple rooms going through one bedroom to another, um, which mm. doesn't really suit modern day living. So putting in a, a carefully sighted second staircase to get access to the end bedroom um, suddenly opened up all the, the layout uh, with a small extension on the back to put in a new bathroom and all the services and the utility room on the ground floor. Uh, and we were able to, to make the whole thing work. And I'm pleased to say that um, all these years later, I think nearly 20 years later, the people who bought it from us um, are still living there and, and they are still loving it. That's so we, we must have got something right. Yeah, I visited them last year and uh, they were 
showed me around and it was it was wonderful to see it must be really nice to revisit somewhere that you've put you know you've put so much uh, move into because I think most people who might be doing this particularly doing it in the way that you did where you are taking it on as a project and trying to do it lovingly to sell it on I don't think it happens too often um I think a lot of people would be buying these houses to sort of do them up for themselves and um, to live in and then they get to enjoy the the rewards and of what they've done um what you were describing there um with the the sort of long corridor I think it like to me it sounds very similar to the kind of um traditional farmhouses that we would have here the traditional little um vernacular and um, being like a, a long house except that it was made of brick which we would not really have in um the, the rural parts of Ireland um but one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you which is I guess it's similar to, to what you're saying there so you have done a lot, particularly with the old house eco handbook in this sort of improving the, the energy efficiency, we'll say, of a historic building or upgrading it to be a bit more sustainable, to be to improve the sort of the thermal performance of it. And this is something that I feel a lot of people in Ireland recently have been turning to these sort of older buildings to take them on as a, a new family home for themselves, as an affordable option for a family home. And they tend to be maybe not as untouched and um, a position as the one that you were talking about. They tend to be sometimes in, in a bit of a bad state, I guess derelict, like you were saying. And I was just wondering if you could talk us through an approach that people might want to take um, when coming to one of these buildings, knowing that they want to uh, repair it and they want to make a home out of it and they want to make a modern home out of it. And they also want to probably insulate it and like improve like draft proof it and do all these things to it and um, I was wondering if you could this is a very long-winded way of saying this I was wondering if you could tell us your approach to how they should do that because a lot of people come and they go what should I do I have this cottage what you know what insulation can I put on it and they it's usually yeah. like a one they just want this one thing that's going to solve it for them well I think um with any with any building you you work on the quick wins first and I think the main areas of heat loss are single glazed, drafty windows and um, uninsulated ceilings. So they are relatively easy to tackle. Certainly ceilings. Um, if you've got flat, flat ceilings in your bedrooms, then getting up in the loft space and laying 300 millimeter thick of ideally a natural quilt um, above those ceilings will make a big difference carefully laying it so that you don't get any thermal bridges um, make sure that your electrician doesn't go up in your loft space after you've laid all this beautiful insulation because they rip it all up and make a hell of a mess never put it back down again so get the electrical works done first or ideally get the electrics well above the the layer of the insulation so that they don't need to disturb it um, but really good ceiling insulation if you've got sloping ceilings that is more problematic because you can't get down uh, between the tiles and the and the plasterwork, generally speaking. So you've either got to uh, insulate from above if you're re-roofing, which is, of course, the best course of action, or insulate from below, uh, maybe with a wood fibre board or something like that on the sloping section of the ceiling. Um, mm -hmm. And then we plaster directly onto the wood fibre board, which works really, really well. I was just going to say, what plaster? You would use a lime plaster or would a contemporary plaster work in this situation? I imagine it needs to be breathable still. Yeah, I mean, so what we do is if, if it's plasterboard on the underside of those sloping, uh, sloping rafters, then we would take the plasterboard off and we would put a wood fibre board insulation, 40 millimetres thick as a minimum, possibly with a little bit of quilt or insulation bat above, and then lime plaster directly onto it. And there's various plasters that are compatible with wood fibre boards. There's lots of details in the Old House Eco Handbook about this, actually. Um, so, so, so that's great, but I think retaining the character of the building as well. You don't, I always feel once, you can always tell an old building that's been covered in plasterboard because it's so flat and lifeless. Mm. Whereas wood fibre board, especially if you can bend it, so mm. it's, it, it fits the undulations uh, of the structure and then you can get nice shapes and a lime plaster always just feels different to a modern gypsum anyway so yeah. getting getting the detail right at ceiling level is important because of course warm air rises so this is a, a, an important place 
to tackle first. But windows as well, windows are the big problem. And um, I must say, I was driving around Ireland on the West Coast just last week, and I was on the lookout for traditional windows, and I oh, could God. barely see a single one. <laughs> oh, God, don't do so depressing. Too many PVC ones. I was so upset. I mean, on the one hand, I completely understand it, because if mm -hmm. you were living on the West Coast of Ireland, where... Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that's standing between you and America is the Atlantic. Then, you know, you've got all that driving wind and rain. Um, I can understand why it's really important to be warm and to cut out those drafts. And UPVC, of course, will offer all of those things. But um, it will completely ruin the appearance yeah. of a traditional building. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's a very, very difficult situation. Um, no one wants to be cold. No one wants to have massive energy bills. But I think now we're getting to a point where we can um, draft-proof traditional windows and use secondary glazing as well. Yeah. And with a combination of those things, um, I think it's possible to achieve really good results, keeping those lovely old windows um, as well as being warm and cutting down costs for the homeowner. This with the secondary glazing is something I think it just as a concept has never really come to Ireland. I know my dad built our house in the 80s and he was inspired by some lead glass windows that he saw and our sitting room windows were a single leaded glass pane that he didn't even cement properly. He just put them in the lead curtains. <laughs> and my mum would obviously complain that it was drafty, you know, while it was very beautiful, it was drafty and everything. And I remember him wanting to put secondary glazing on it and my mum being like, why would you do that? That's just crazy. Like, And she now has replaced them with PVC windows and she's very happy with them. And I think it's just not something people really have been aware of in Ireland that much, but it is there. there is some great options, some great affordable options. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of uh, plastic secondary glazing. Mm. So for windows that you keep permanently shut during the winter months, but want mm. to open during the summer months, then the plastic magnetic secondary glazing is relatively cheap, relatively easy to do yourself. Mm. And you stick it on, you, know, you use the magnets to fit it on come October, um, have it through the winter, take it off in the spring, and then you've got your lovely old windows back um, for that period of time. And I think that's great. It, it's, it's a really good option for windows that you do not open during the winter months. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've got it throughout my house uh, and it works brilliantly. It works absolutely brilliantly. It's relatively discreet. If you've got curtains on, then that covers the sides of it anyway. It almost mm -hmm. disappears. Um, but the great thing is you can just take it off um, during the spring when it warms up. I hide it under an old duvet cover, stick it onto the bed and forget about it till the following autumn. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's great. Um, it's affordable. It works just as well as any UPVC window. Um, so I, I would get people, I would, I would really encourage people to think about that as a potential option. For windows that you do open all year round, maybe it's in a bathroom or if you're one of these strange people who has the bedroom window open all year round, um, something, a concept I've never quite understood, but I understand there's quite a lot of people out there. Um, <laughs> then, uh, then a sliding secondary glass, a glass system is, is the only option for that, um, which can be a little more um, bulky and noticeable yeah. but still well worth it because the outside of the house will look so beautiful with its old windows so much better than those those upvc alternatives <laughs> i know i i feel your pain with the with the the pvc windows um i used to work for um a window conservation company and um got very uh, what's the word got very um aware of the the different types of glass that are out there. I'm constantly looking for it. And even just recognizing what is a, an original sash, timber sash window versus one that's been remade in, in more recent years, even if it's been remade well. Um, and yeah, once you, once you go down the country, you'll find that like a, a lot of the windows have changed um, and have been replaced with, with PVC. They're, they're even as metal ones. I know my father grew up in a, um, in a traditional, um, 
single story farmhouse originally and then they he moved into a second uh, two story one later but they had I saw photos when he was an infant about three or four and they lived in a patched beautiful patch with these timber sash windows that looked gorgeous and then few years seen a photo of him when he was a few years later and they had replaced the the thatch with I think asbestos tiles and they had replaced the windows with um aluminium oh, no. metal, metal frames and for them at that time you know this was the 1950s and 60s this was wow we're so modern now we've got these new modern materials um and you know out with this old sort of this you know the old-fashioned patch and, and timber like you want this new strong material and of course they were freezing in it um like the windows didn't they uh they didn't last very long they corroded and they eventually got chucked down and got replaced by plastic ones as well mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a sad story i have to say with with the windows yeah. in ireland but i was really encouraged um having spent a rather depressing week on galway just I mean, the the countryside is so magnificent. There's so many wonderful buildings, but the windows have virtually all gone. Then we drove back to Sandy Cove in Dublin, and there were so many lovely old windows there. That was just a magnificent place, such a beautiful place. Yeah. All with its original um, sash windows, almost all. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was just great, very heartening to see that you still have a lot of old sash windows. We do in the cities, I think. So not all hope has been lost, but I think um, I think it's just something to consider. Once they've gone, they've gone. In fact, I feel so strongly about it. I, um, uh, along with a couple of friends, um, we're running a Windows conference, historic Windows conference, uh, in Warwickshire in uh, in September, when we're going to be talking about all these issues about the history of Windows, the significance of Windows, and how to repair and retrofit them properly. So wow. I think it's a big issue. It's a big debate and it's it's got a long way to go. It is a big debate. Like we are having a project at the moment, um, um, a house in Dublin. Um, it's a Georgia building. The house went on fire. Um, all the, on the, that happened on the ground floor and all the windows have been replaced in the 80s with PVC windows. And now we're finding ourselves with a dilemma are we going to replace them with new PVC windows? Because then we have the old facade that is um, homogenous, or do we actually reinstate the original Georgian windows, like all the other houses on the road, because they're all protected structures? And obviously, like I would feel like, well, we have a chance. Maybe we should re- reinstate the original Georgian ones, but it's, it's a massive debate. Mm. with other architects so not everybody agrees on that and a lot of like homeowners would tend to go well the as we said before the pvc windows is is more efficient but if you're starting from scratch you can put in really good quality new wood windows exactly they're going to be they're going to be more expensive but my goodness they will look so much better um so it depends what your priorities are i think doesn't it and I think the timber windows would have a better lifespan. I think this is when you're thinking about the the sort of the full life of a building, a PVC window only, I think the estimated life of it is 20 to 30 years. I might be wrong there. It might be 30 to 40 years, but I think it's 20 to 30 years. Whereas if you have good quality timber windows, they can, you know, I've, I have worked on windows that are, you know, two, 300 years old and, you know, they just need a bit of a, a bit of a brush up, a bit of a repair here and there. So I think, um yeah it's it's affordability i think is the thing and if you have it's far better if you have the original timber windows and if they're looking a bit rotten in places i think a lot of people see a bit of rot in wood and they go oh that's it that needs to be yeah that has to be replaced yeah Yeah. it's mindset as well thinking that something is plastic it's better yeah and it's durable they think it's more durable if it's plastic but it's actually in the long long term it isn't um, and for the in terms of um, ebo- uh, in terms of embodied emissions, the timber windows are also more sustainable in that way because they're not using this this high CO two um, products like high petroleum based products. They're using more natural, hopefully more local products. Um, depends where the wood is coming from. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a, as an absolute no brainer. I I, w- I couldn't put any heart into a project where I didn't put back the you know a, a wood window mm-hmm. um it just it will just feel like too much of a compromise 
But of course, the biggest problem is is skills. Um, you know, wood windows are completely repairable, mm. but you've got to find someone who knows how to do it, who's going to take the time to source proper quality wood to repair mm. it with. Uh, yeah. You've got to find a, a, a painter decorator who is prepared to rub it all down and prepare the surfaces and redecorate it properly, taking real care to cut in all the lines around the window panes. It, it is it is a lot more trouble and mm. people have to feel that that is worthwhile. Um, you've got to love it. You've got to understand it. And uh, I think that's where there's probably a, a gaping hole. People just don't appreciate what a beautiful thing a window is. I think you've uh, it, to me, it's like, um, can you imagine, you know, if you uh, inherited a wonderful old piece of antique furniture and you said, oh, no, I don't want this. It's got a little bit of woodworm on the corner. Let's chuck it out and buy something from Ikea instead, you know. It, mm -hmm. it, it's the equivalent. And uh, to live in an old house with plastic windows just, just feels wrong. I think I've said it before on this podcast. My mother grew up also in a thatch cottage and they they saw that when she was younger. And a part of her, I think, would love to buy it back and live in it. But I remember asking her, well, what would you do to it? Would you be able to live in it as she is? She was like, oh, no, we could just put in bigger windows. You know, you need to let the light in. <laughs> it's just like, but then is it really the same building? And, you know, you've done something really significant um, to sort of damage it. Like you've, you've also changed the atmosphere of the inside of it, I think. Lack of appreciation is definitely, when you said that, I was like, that is definitely, you hit the nail on the head there. It's not just with the windows, though, I feel. Sometimes it's with the buildings themselves, like the details of the buildings. People like the exterior shape and facade of your, your lovely traditional cottage or farmhouse. And they usually are prepared to just entirely gut the interior and because there's a bit of damp hair in the timber there. Or, you know, oh, I don't like this style. I want a big modern kitchen. And it's when you were saying that about adding in the stairs, I think it's just such a nice, considerate way to approach reusing the space in a different way. You don't just get to rip everything out of it and like make it one big, huge open space and then insert a new building into it. It's it's being aware of what is there and why it was important. Because um, I think a lot of people remove things without really understanding there might be a bit of importance to it. You know, maybe the stairs is a bit pokey, but if you step back and look at it, maybe it adds a bit of charm. <laughs> Yeah, I think living in an old building comes with hassle. There is no doubt about it. And it's not for everybody. But what I would say is if, if it doesn't appeal, if you're not prepared to go through that hassle, then and buy a modern building and leave that old building to someone who will love it and will care for it. That's how I feel about it anyway. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to make compromises. The rooms are darker without great big modern picture windows. The plaster is wobbly. You hit your head on the door frame when you walk through it. The windows all stick a bit um, when they swell, um, and uh, it, it, it's, it comes with um, with problems and inconveniences. But for me, I, having lived now in several old houses, I could never ever go back to living in a modern house. That that's just me, and uh, I think that I hope the people who are listening feel the same way. Yeah, or you're just putting them right off it. Yes, I might yeah. be actually. I'm not, I'm not selling it, am I? Um, but, um, but yeah, they are. They're just wonderful things. I like the idea that um, when you're when you're lying in bed, you know, you, you just sort of sense that history um, washing over you, um, looking up at the old ceilings and just thinking how many people in the past have have been in this space. In fact, my children. One of my children said to me once. I mean, when we moved into our last old house, they said, Mummy, has, has anyone ever died in this house? And it was built in about, <laughs> Fair it was built in about, built in about 1550, this house. Yeah, and I looked then. them in the eye and I said, no, I'm sure no one's ever died in this house. <laughs> and they said, thank goodness for that. Um, but, um, you know, that's just the way it is. But I, I like the sense with, with an old floor. You know, you can see where people, where the foot traffic has travelled over an old floor, where it's mm -hmm. worn away. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the quickest route between one doorway and another. Um, and you see those that sort of pattern of use and you see how people have rubbed against things. Um, and, you know, the sort of wear and tear on the door handles and 
Um, you know, all those lovely things on the nosing of the stairs where it's just worn away in the middle. They're, they're just wonderful things. And uh, and if you appreciate those things, then, then you want to keep them and you want to look after them. I really want you to come over and take on an Irish an Irish traditional farmhouse now. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I was I was driving a, I, we were driving around Galway last week in a camper van, and uh, I was driving my my husband crazy because every time he passed a derelict house, <laughs> I'd say stop the van. <laughs> we pulled over, and uh, so I could take photographs. But it occurred to me that building probably won't be there next time I come to Ireland. Uh, it's sort of a record. But, you know, I just thought, gosh, if, if I lived here, I would want to buy that building and bring it back to life yeah. and love it and take care of it. And, uh, you know, I was, I was really surprised by how many buildings there were that just had sort of fallen into disrepair that nobody nobody wanted to take on. There is a massive amount. One of the girls on the spot committee, she went on a cycle, a 25 kilometre cycle with a friend of her last summer. and. I think in 25 kilometers, they counted 25 abandoned rural houses. Mm-hmm. And they were shocked that the number was so outrageous. There is definitely awareness within built heritage and the conservation community here that this is like, it's a huge problem. The Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage released a strategy just last year for vernacular buildings, and that's to enhance the understanding, care and handing on of our built vernacular heritage. It was um, put together by Barry O'Reilly, who was the very first person we interviewed for this podcast. And there are things being done to deal with these issues here in Ireland. It's just maybe it's a bit too late for a lot of them. And um, it's quite sad, the amount of derelict and vacant buildings there are. There even there is um, a new funding stream, Vacant Houses stream, where if anyone is buying or owns a house and plans to live in it uh, themselves for the next 10 years they get 50,000 from their local authority to do whatever works they need to do there's no restrictions you can use it for like redoing the doors I think you could even reuse it for painting but it's if it's derelict it's 50,000 I think if it's vacant it's maybe 20 or 30,000 because they really just are trying to get people interested in these buildings but the thing that comes with that is there's no, we'll say controls or there's no encouragement in that for people to be conservative about how they deal with these buildings. They just sort of say, take a vacant building, live in it, do what you want with it. Um, so it's really lovely to hear you recognizing the value of the details and describing how it is possible to take an old building and realize what needs to be held onto and then being careful about it. It's it's really Really warm and comforting to hear. I think the thing that saddened me driving around last week was that, you know, I was seeing the last of those buildings. And I thought if my children come back in 20 years' time, they won't be there. Yeah. They just won't be there. We are the last people to see how 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 generations used to live. And uh, it will just be such a loss to the whole tradition of Ireland. To, to live buildings, it's just so sad. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, let's let's see what happens. Maybe there'll be a a new generation out there who want to come along and uh, and 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 just love them and put them bring them back to life. Let's hope so. Anyway. Um, I have a question. Um, so. The guidance on the on the energy efficiency upgrading of buildings now is pushing towards things to do that are not really compatible with historic buildings, like install the heat pump. And if you install the heat pump, you should draft proof completely your house. And maybe if you want to run the heat pump efficiently, you should have solar panels, all things that are not necessarily compatible with an historic building. Um, do you think there is like should we change our views on that and think well maybe we should turn a blind eye on the solar panel on the historic roof or is mm. is there a way to integrate the two things like and and have an energy efficient building that is historic and respected at the same time 
Yeah, no, I think there absolutely is. And I think heat pumps and old buildings, well, I think they're only compatible if you have insulated and draft-proof the building. But I think I think you can do that in a way that is compatible with the fabric. I mean, you can you can insulate buildings with breathable materials, lime plasters, insulated lime plasters, lime hemp, sprayed lime hemp, wood fiber boards. There's a whole range of products where you can, with knowledge and with care, you can insulate solid walled structures. Um, but I think you you need to. The main thing is to tackle um, air tightness. You have to make buildings relatively airtight in order to make them environmentally friendly um, and energy efficient. And I, I think that's okay. We are never going to create hermetically sealed old buildings. We, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only do that if you start from scratch on a new build. Um, so I think just tackling the drafts, particularly doors and windows, is, is a great place to start if you want some energy efficiency. But the other thing with heat pumps is I think because they're they're running on a much lower temperature, it's no good just in connecting them to your existing radiators. I think heat pumps work well if you've insulated your building, you've draft-proofed your building, and you put in underfloor heating. And underfloor heating is a is a is a great thing to do if you don't have a historic floor. Very few people have historic floors these days. Obviously, if you've got beautiful old flagstones laid on earth that have been untouched for three hundred years then do not touch them, leave them there. But if you've got a concrete floor slab that's a bit damp, that's causing a bit of a problem anyway, then taking it up and laying a limecrete floor on um, foam glass aggregate and incorporating underfloor heating um, suddenly makes the heat pump viable in an old building. I have kind of two questions for you. The first one is what you're saying there about the flagstones. I was in a building before, it was a Georgian building in Dublin actually, but in the basement of it, it had flagstones there was not much left in this building that was actually original and a lot had been done to it and a lot of you know inappropriate things done in the 80s to it but um seeing the basement on this floor is like this is amazing and the owner decided to lift those flagstones to put them back but just to lift them and put underfloor heating in underneath it and then to put the flagstones back how do you feel about that thing do you think it's going to look fully the same does it really how much would it affect the building like the character and the authenticity of course there's no point in putting underfloor heating unless you've got insulation under there Mm. and really um foam glass aggregate is the best way to put insulation under a flagstone under a solid floor Mm. um so you you do need a a build-up so you don't need to dig down anyway which can involve undermining undermining shallow footings and all those sorts of things as well um, I don't know. I, it, it depends on what you're trying to achieve, and it depends. It depends what you're starting off with as well, and how precious that thing is, how unique, um, how special it is, um, as to whether or not you you feel it is worth the intervention. But certainly, mm. I think if you're talking heat pumps, I think you've got to be doing it in conjunction with underfloor heating. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't think you stand a chance, really. Yeah. As for solar panels, well, I I, I think there's a place for solar panels on historic roofs, um, but done sensitively, you know, on the, maybe on the rear elevation if it's south-facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is a problem with solar panels in that they themselves have a very limited life. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, they're not recyclable. Um, they are the next environmental disaster waiting to happen. So I don't think we can just say, well, let's carry on using as much electricity as we want. We'll just put in loads of solar panels. Mm-hmm. Solar panels are, are, are not not a solution in their own right. Um, reducing uh, the amount of energy we need in the first place is is really really important. So we have to tackle we have to tackle this thermal envelope of the building first. That kind of brings me on to the second question I want to ask, which is, have you come across any particularly bad, we'll say, retrofitting of historic buildings that have been causing damage? Because what you're talking about here is all sort of very sensible interventions that really take into consideration, you know, a building, the fabric of the building and how well this new material is going to integrate with it. I'm wondering, could you tell us about any, I'm not going to say disasters, but have you worked on any buildings where you've had to undo damage caused by poor retrofitting? That's inverted commas retrofitting there. 
Yeah, I mean, we're seeing because um, the whole energy efficiency market is so massive, there are lots of people getting on the bandwagon and doing really, really bad stuff. Um, I think one of those things is um, spray foam on the underside of roofs. I mean, that is Mm. an absolute disaster. People think they're doing the right thing by spraying the underside, but if you're going directly onto the tiles, then all you're doing is stopping the reuse of those tiles, which will cost you many more times um, when you come to re-roof. Uh, my own sister had the problem, actually. The, the house that she had had been spray-foamed on the on the underside of some beautiful Welsh slates. And a vast majority of the cost of re-roofing was hacking off each individual slate to separate it from this gunge that had glued it on. And then everyone had to ended up in a skip. The cost of the skips was massive. And then she couldn't reuse a single tile. And had it not been spray foamed, they would have got 80% salvage from these beautiful old Welsh slates that were otherwise in very good condition. So it's just a crazy, crazy thing, this um, spray foaming. Um, Even though they claim now some of these products claim to be breathable and all that nonsense, you know, just don't do it. Do not touch spray foam. Um, when it comes to old buildings. I think the other thing, of course, is the problem is insulating walls with non-breathable materials and not understanding about dew points. Um, If you insulate on the inside, you create a cold interface between the insulation and the wall where you can get interstitial condensation forming and create all sorts of problems. So Mm -hmm. that's not a great idea. Um, But if you insulate on the outside, it's can be extremely complex in terms of dealing with all the other problems like the overhang of the roof doesn't extend far enough um, and the the resolution all around the windows um, moving all the windows out like changing all the positions of the uh, of the gullies and the downpipes and all those sorts of things so this is this is tricky stuff Mm -hmm. and and I think I've sort of come to the conclusion that if you live in a rubble stone building with great thick walls then Mm -hmm. I think have a very light touch approach to insulating the walls um if you've got a nine inch brick wall then that's a different situation and um particularly massive end gable walls without any windows on you know these are great places to insulate um but every every building is different and that's why it's complicated and that's why it's expensive because you've got to get really good advice to make sure that the approach you're taking suits your very specific uh, building uh, we've tried to cover quite a lot of this in the old house eco handbook, so uh, there are a lot of details in there. But I think as homeowners, it's really important to be very well informed um, so that when you're talking to potential contractors, you can ask all the right questions and you can suss out the people who know what they're talking about and the people that don't. Are there any particular tips you would have for homeowners who might have one of these buildings that maybe needs a bit of care, they need to do some repair work, um, and any materials that are good for working within that building, um, other than anything specific, or if it's something that you've come across, if you worked on many mud wall buildings yourself, maybe you have not. Yeah, I mean, in, a, in my early career, I was a mud mason for six months, working in Lincolnshire on them. Um, on modern stud buildings, um, and I've done quite a lot of mud work in Leicestershire as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I know the material well. I, th- I just think um, that, you know, we are, we are measuring thermal performance on all the wrong things, and mm-hmm. earth is a fantastic insulator. If you've got a 800 millimetre thick earth wall, um, keep it dry. Um, make the rest of the building relatively airtight. Concentrate on other areas. Don't touch the mud walls. Um, mm-hmm. They've got to be massively more energy efficient than than a, a, a modern insulated cavity wall. I just anyone who tells me otherwise, I, I will not believe them. Um, mm-hmm. Mud is fantastically insulating, and uh, I think it, it performs in a way that is that we don't fully understand. But it, it, it is you have to be super careful when you're touching mud because if it gets damp over a long period of time, it will collapse. So I don't think you've really got options of of insulating a mud wall. I think you just you just look after it, you keep it dry, and you concentrate mm-hmm. on other areas of the building. I was just thinking about with with the insulation you were saying on the rubble stone. What do you think of sort of insulating plasters? Do you think these are something that that can work well in this sort of situation? So there's a whole range of insulating plasters now, mm. and there are 
new products constantly coming on the market. It all depends on what you're using as your aggregate, your insulating aggregate. Um, but I think certainly if it's not, if you're not going to put up a wood fiber board, a wood fiber board is by far the best thing um, in the mm-hmm. plastering. But if for whatever reason that's not possible, then an insulating plaster is certainly better than not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So I think rubble stone walls, um, where you've already got the thickness of the wall, you've already got lots of earth mortar in the core of that wall. It's already performing reasonably well. Um, I think a, an insulating plaster, either internally or externally or even both, is it, certainly worth um, giving a try. Yeah, um, particularly if you if you get a really nice lime insulating plaster that you can get those follow those natural in undulations of the rubble wall. I, I think that that can work well. Yeah, I think that you don't want to cover up this nice texture of the interior of a wall. It's it's nice to have yeah. something that works with it. Um, I'm going to move on to our final questions, unless, Livia, you have any further that you want to, because I'm just afraid of taking up too much of your time. Yeah, I am just curious if you are planning on taking on a new project with another house, another historic house in the near future. Maybe in Ireland. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, I don't think I'd tackle one in Ireland. It's just too far away, um, as much as I'm tempted. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's probably one more house in me, um, yeah, before I hang up my my goggles. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I shall probably be uh, doing one more. But I have to uh, speak to the rest of the family about that and uh, (laughs) and make sure they're going to go along with me. (laughs) You should involve them. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I think it will be a family affair. Um, but yeah, definitely, um, it, the uh, the joy never leaves you really of uh, of, of taking something that is is um, on its last legs and just and and just giving it new life. I think it's a it's a wonderfully satisfying feeling, and I think mm-hmm. people that's why people who work in conserving old buildings get so much satisfaction from that from their jobs because mm-hmm. it's a lovely giving sort of thing and. Um, the joy is is tremendous yeah i think you're you're because it's not just yourself you're you're like you're only a blip in this building or object's life and you're just you're being helping part us. of the history yeah you're just sending yeah. it on into the future just a um, trustee for those who come after us as william morris would say exactly So I'm going to move on to our final questions now. Um, this is a question we ask everybody who's on the podcast. And I think you you know a bit about the context of Irish buildings, of Irish traditional farm buildings. So I'm, I'm going to put this question to you. Um, what one thing do you think can be done to improve the situation for vernacular buildings in Ireland? Gosh, that's a difficult one. Or in the UK, if that's a bit too, too difficult. Well, I think if you've got a derelict building, mm. Um, and you don't have anyone at this moment in time to take it on and look after it, um, then maybe you could somehow mothball it, stop it from getting any worse, uh, in the hope that in the near future, somebody will come along and, and want to adopt it. Yeah. I think, uh, stop them from, stop them from going any further into decline and, uh, at least give them a chance to find a loving owner. Yeah. And in, in that, you mean sort of um, maintaining it, making sure it has a good roof or that the roof at least is yeah. covered. And, yeah. Corrugated iron is a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, stick some corrugated iron over the top, stop it from collapsing anymore. Uh, I think I think it's a really important thing um, to just to, to mothball buildings and, and stop that deterioration um, so it doesn't go any, any further. But I think then protecting it, you know, they are now quite precious, these old buildings that are in anything anywhere near an original state. And so mm-hmm. protection is really important. Um, yeah. Education, um, training and, uh, and protecting them to make sure that whatever happens next in the next chapter is the right thing for that building. And it doesn't um, suffer the same fate as so many old buildings throughout England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Mm-hmm. just through through ignorance and lack of care neglect yeah right second question what is your favorite vernacular building oh probably harder question <laughs> yeah, so many 
so many. I'm terribly fickle on this one because I, I keep changing my mind. I mean, it's um, I just fall in love with buildings on a regular basis and uh, get very, very excited when I see something um, that's that's old and special in, in anywhere near original condition. And I'm very lucky with my job in that I see quite a lot of those buildings. Um, so, uh, yeah, the joy never leaves you. Um, and uh, I, I'm... I get to enjoy them all the time. So I don't think I could choose a favorite. I think that's my answer. Do you want to choose a category maybe? <laughs> yeah. A particular style or type. Okay. So if I was to live in my perfect house, it would probably be a 17th century Cotswold house with, um, with a stone tile roof and a double gable at the front and lovely original old glass and original plaster. So that would be my type. Basically, Kelmscott Manor, I think, would be my perfect house. Right. Um, if you if you know that one, where where William Morris lived, that, that comes pretty close to heaven to me. Super. Thank you very much for the chat and for everybody, I think, listening. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, mm -hmm. We'll have to leave it there right now because otherwise we're gonna keep talking all night thank you so much Marianne. it's been okay. absolutely lovely thank you very much great to meet you both thanks for inviting me that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed this chat with marianne if you're interested in purchasing the old house eco handbook it's available to purchase from the spab website shop or elsewhere online a second edition will be released in late October, so do keep an eye out for that. The window conference Marianne was mentioning is called Through the Looking Glass, a future for historic windows, and will be running in person over the 22nd and 23rd of September in the University of Warwick, Coventry. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to both of those, as well as other resources mentioned in today's episode. Next week, we'll be talking to Kilkenny-based patcher Jimmy Lenehan about everything patch. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to give us feedback or ideas about future guests or topics, please give us a review and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, previously iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to help us in our quest to protect Irish vernacular and built heritage in any way, do consider getting in touch. We particularly love to hear from anyone who knows about vernacular buildings under threat that our casework team would be able to help out with. Or if you yourself have a couple of hours to spare every month and are interested in joining our team, we could really do with volunteers to help spread the word and preserve our heritage. You can reach out to us and find out more about SPAB Ireland and the work we do on social media at SPAB Ireland on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website, which we'll post in the show notes. As ever, many thanks to the Heritage Council for generously supporting this podcast under the Heritage Capacity Fund 2023. And thanks to our editor, Graeme Baldwin, and the rest of the team at SPAB Ireland and SPAB HQ. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends. Good day on Kate or Ella. Slán. Mm -hmm.